0: All right, today we're in uh, Romans 12, and uh, we're going to finish the 12th chapter here. We left off at the end of verse 13, so let's read together in verse 14 to 21. And for those of you who have your Bibles, just if you would just follow along with me as I'm reading this, I think it'll be helpful to us. And this is kind of like last week we looked at our relationship to each other, and it's just you know, a, a loving uh, relationship that we have to one another. And there's a little bit here about how we relate to each other, but a lot of this is how we relate to the world that we live in. So let's read this together, starting in verse 14. Paul writes and says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony, verse 16, with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay, verse 17, no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, verse 18, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. So don't, don't be too excited about that, though. I'll, I'll to explain to you what that means. Verse 21, some of you are like, yes. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Lord, we just are so uh, thankful to you for a brand new life that you won for us by the cross. We're also challenged, Lord, by this new life. We ask, Lord, for the help, the ability, the strength of your Holy Spirit. Lord, uh, in every relationship that we're ever in, Lord, to be the aroma of Christ in that relationship. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the great salvation you've given to us. And we pray now, Lord, that your word would cut down to the very core of who we are. And Lord, that you'd help me as a teacher of your word to explain it, Lord, to express it well. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I've told you guys before that I I like watching all kinds of sports, you know, and um, I love baseball. And one of the things that's uh, interesting to me, in fact, uh, from time to time, I've I've actually, with my daughters, gotten on YouTube and watched old baseball fights. You know, they're just, I don't know, there's something about a fight on a baseball field. I don't condone it, but it is entertaining. (laughs) But a lot of times what these guys do, you know, out there is there's, you know, one guy will throw a pitch a little close to somebody and then the batter will kind of glare at him. And then there's like this escalating process, you know, like, well, you did this, and then I did that, and there's kind of, and usually, they're kind of just faking it, like, they don't really actually want to fight, they're just, like, waiting for their teammates to come and and hold them back, you know, kind of thing, like, if if these guys weren't on me, you don't even know what I would do, you know, kind of thing, but really, in their minds, they're thinking, I make 17 million dollars a year, and I'm not about to get hurt fighting you, but anyways, I just, But what you see happening in an environment like that is an escalation. You know, in every situation that we're in, we have an opportunity to be the one that brings in peace. We have an opportunity to escalate a problem, a conflict, a difficulty. Jesus, in his cross, took all of the weight of the evil of mankind from every generation and squashed it at the cross. That's what he did. He took all of our evil, all of our rebellion, all of our hate, all of our hurt, all of the animosity from mankind towards God, and he made a way for it to be dealt with and ended completely in his cross. And so when we receive him, when we embrace him, when we believe in him, we're forgiven. That animosity is over with. We are now at peace with God. But you see, Jesus was not the offending party. We were the offending party. Yet he was the one who initiated a path forward in peace. That spirit, that cross, that gospel is supposed to get inside of the way that we live our lives every day. And that's what Paul is explaining to us here in this chapter, in this section of Scripture. And so today, especially, we're looking at how to deal with and interact with people in our lives, and a couple of the things that Paul says have to do with the difficult people uh, in our lives. The theme that I have for today's teaching or today's text is, is really simple. It's, it's just this. Jesus introduced a life which runs opposite our feelings and impulses, and we respond now differently to enemies, sensitively to others, humbly with believers, and peaceably with all. Right, so that's what we're going to look at today. Basically, four areas, how we deal with enemies, others, believers, and just mankind in general. So the first one, verse 14, let's look at it again. We're learning how here uh, we're to operate differently with enemies than than we have uh, previously, than, than is natural to us. Now, you probably noticed that Paul is going to talk about this in two parts. He's going to mention it in verse 14, then he's going to talk about a few other relationships, and then in verse 19, he's going to begin talking to us again about how to deal uh, with enemies, those who might bring persecution uh, into our lives. Here in verse 14, the way he says it is very straightforward, very simple. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, before... Really thinking about this, I just want to make mention of, I think, the proper context for the way to apply this. Because notice there, Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. I think this is a very individualized exhortation that Paul is giving. In other words, maybe to say it in another way, some of you might be part of the military. And you might be wondering, how does a passage like this about vengeance, belonging to God, and all of that, how does that speak into my role and my situation? Of course, we're going to see that in Romans chapter 13, which I'm sure you've studied, many of you. But in verse 4, Paul says, they do not bear the sword in vain. So there are times, obviously, in our lives where we ourselves will be instruments of ending the evil that is occurring to someone else, as fathers we protect our children we'll defend our children we're not going to watch our children go through abuse or difficulty we're going to enter in and protect them and watch over them and as a church we'll find those who are suffering under injustice or pain or abuse and we want to be a remedy for that so i don't think paul is talking about something ridiculous or something that is you know applies beyond our own personal attitude to the way that we handle persecution that's coming uh, in our direction. So I'll talk a little bit more more about that when we get to the last section uh, of this uh, uh, teaching. But let's think about this little phrase that Paul gives to us there in verse 14 again. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. You know, when persecution comes into your life, or let's just say it in a different way, when hostility comes into your life, it's not an easy thing to respond with blessing is it this is way beyond the natural man what does the natural man do we can see it right there in the text curse curse that's an interesting word uh, it can just mean you know some kind of negative thing, but it can also be a supernatural kind of attitude like i you 're trying to you 're trying to speak something that does something supernatural into into uh, their lives, so maybe uh, for some of you when you 've had someone you know do something bad to you, persecute you. Maybe in your mind, you're racing back into some of those Old Testament style prayers. We call them imprecatory prayers. You're like looking for the Psalms where they're praying things like, oh God, break their teeth and uh, dash them to pieces upon the rocks, you know? And you're you're thinking, yes, uh, I do have a prayer for you and about you, and there it is, you know, kind of thing. But Paul here says, Actually, as Christians, we're not to bring a curse. That's one of the great difficulties uh, that he holds out to us. You know, it's easy to curse, it's natural to curse. But let's think about that for just a second. Is it helpful to curse? Does it really produce anything? Someone said to me last week after looking at what it looks like to love one another, they said, you know, this is really beautiful, but it's so difficult. It's so hard. But on the other hand, if we think about it in a different way, if we just think about the results of living the natural life, the results of the natural life are so often actually what's difficult. You know, it might be hard in the moment Not to bring the curse. But when you do bring the curse, it affects your soul. It affects the atmosphere. It corrupts everything. Now, I've told you guys before that we have this stoplight intersection near our home. So I drive through it nearly every day of my life. And at this intersection, uh, there are no turn lanes, but everybody turns left. Both directions, everybody turns left. So there's no turn lane, but everybody turns left. And whenever I'm approaching it, I see everybody coming in the other direction. I know that probably 99 out of 100 of them are going to turn left. But every once in a while, someone might drive straight. So I'm looking to see, are they, do they have their blinker on? And if they don't have their blinker on, I have to assume they're going to go straight. So I wait for them to go straight. And 99 times out of 100, they pull out into the middle of that intersection. And then as they're in the middle of the intersection... They turn their blinker on to indicate at the last second, I'm turning left. And oh, man, it gets me every single time. And as they're driving away, you know, then, I, you know, I mean, because I had to wait forever, you know, like 0.7 seconds. I had to wait for them to make their turn. And then, I, and then I'm like, oh, okay, so you're turning. So now I have permission to turn and I turn. Is it going to do any good at all for me in that moment to bring a curse? It's not going to change them. The only thing it's going to do is negatively impact my own heart. So that's just a lighthearted example to say that the curse actually doesn't produce anything. It might be easy, but it's harmful to us. Blessing might be difficult, but if you think about it, it's actu- it actually has the potential of doing some good. You know, if somebody is bringing persecution into your life, maybe take for an illustration, Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle after he became a Christian man. And when he was an unsaved man, he was a heavy persecutor, as you know, of the church. Well, as they prayed for him, if they prayed for him to be cursed, you know, God, make his life difficult, make his life painful, make his life hard. As that was occurring in his life, don't you think that his wrath, would have only grown stronger. But as the church perhaps prayed for his blessing, for his salvation, for whatever corrupt thing had happened inside of his heart that had led him to such hatred against the church, as they prayed for that healing and that blessing to happen in his heart, don't we know that when he got saved, he became the greatest blessing that the church had received? He wrote such great truth to us. He expanded the gospel throughout the world. The blessing of Paul led to the blessing of the church, and the cursing of Paul would have led to the cursing of the church. So there's actually something beautiful there for us to see someone's life blessed, turned around. But this is incredibly Christ like, isn't it? To bless rather than to curse. On the cross, what did Jesus say? As they were crucifying him, the very people that were crucifying him, Jesus spoke about them to the Father, and he said, Father, Forgive them, they know not what they do i-i know I couldn't have said that they know not what they do, they know exactly what they're doing. They put the nails in my hands, they put the nails in in my feet, they're killing me, but he looked beyond that. Father, they're broken, Father, they're deluded, Father, they're blind in their sin. Forgive them, they do not know what they're doing now, of course, you know. If you've read the book of Acts, that when they killed the first Christian and that level of persecution began to hit the early church, the first Christian who died for their faith was a man named Stephen. And when they were raining the stones down upon his body, he prayed very similar to Jesus. He said, Father, forgive them, forgive them. You don't hold this against them. A beautiful emulation uh, an imitation Of Jesus. Very Christ-like to behave uh, in this uh, kind of way, but a a huge challenge. Okay, let's go on to verse 15. We'll pick up that concept again, but in verse 15, we learn a little bit about how to uh, live sensitively to others. Sensitively to others, verse 15. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. All right, so the point here is really simple. It's just live with a sensitivity to the feelings of others. This is a very empathetic kind of statement. You have to, it's almost like the person in verse 15 that's doing this wants to vicariously experience another person's experiences. So you're weeping. I want to almost like get into your skin and experience your weeping with you. And your rejoicing. It's like, I want to get into your skin, and I want to experience your rejoicing with you. Now, of course, this is very much like Christ, isn't it? Uh, I remind you, Jesus is the second person of the triune Godhead. He is God the Son. And there came a moment in obedience to the Father, that he made a decision to step out of eternity, lay aside the privileges of deity, and become a human being like you and me. And when he did that, he was experiencing for the first time the things that we experience in the way that we experience them. He'd had sorrow because mankind had broken his heart, but now he'd experience human sorrow. He experienced fatigue, which he, of course, would never experience as the second person of the Trinity. With infinite energy, he never experienced fatigue, but he experienced fatigue and, and hunger and thirst in his physical body. He was in all points tempted or tested like we are, Hebrews tells us, yeah, of course, without sin. So he, we call that the incarnation. He incarnated for all of us. He can identify with you. He can identify with me. So Jesus, I guess what we're saying is, he's an expert at knowing how to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. His whole body and life and mentality and mindset was incarnational in nature. And so you and me, that's what we're to do with the people of around us. We are to incarnate with others. This is human work, isn't it? To just get into people's lives and to just learn what's going on with you. It's very human. One of my favorite movies is this is the uh, it came out a few years ago the Lego movie i don 't know if any of you have seen it. if you have kids you 've seen it like ninety times. but um, I love the Lego movie. I, I find the humor in it just perfect. I think it 's one of my favorite movies. but the villain in Lego movie, his name is Lord Business, and uh, <laughs> Lord Business he has all these minions that serve him, and they 're all robots and uh, there 's this one point in the movie where he's giving this big villain speech. And at the close of it, kind of the crescendo of his speech, he closes by saying, do you feel me? And that's like his big way of ending his speech. And uh, he, one of his robots like pops his little robot head out in his little robot vo- voice. He says, I feel you, sir. And I, w- I always laugh at it because it's just, it's the, you know, the irony is just so thick. It's like, yeah, a robot, he's just saying that. He doesn't feel anything, but it's Lord Business, so he's programmed to say, I feel you, you know, kind of thing. It's human. It is human for us to be able to actually say, I'm rejoicing with you, or I'm weeping with you. Studies are showing that as our technology increases, our ability to empathize is decreasing. And Quite often, someone who is capable digitally it can be incapable in a human face-to-face kind, kind of interaction. An ability to communicate digitally doesn't mean that you'll be able to, as they say, the kind of the phrase for it are, the soft skills, the human skills. As information expands our attention spans have diminished. And as life speeds up, our patience slows down. And what that means is it's harder for us to actually connect. We have all these technological tools to be able to connect. All these social networks to be able to engage. Yet our culture and society is struck by a, a great level of loneliness. And I think a lot of it has to do with this. Christians, though, have an opportunity. It's very unnatural. Because what, it's, what, what this is, it's a setting aside of my own natural mood and replacing it with your mood. That's what's unnatural about it. But Paul said it this way in First Corinthians 12. He said, if one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together so we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep by the way have you ever found that sometimes it's harder to to do the the rejoicing with those who rejoice kind of thing you know weeping it's like whoa, man you're almost it's almost like a weeping like i'm so sorry for you and i'm so that'd be i'm I can totally, I understand, I would not want to go through that. And that sorrow hits you. But if you ever, someone's rejoicing, and you're like, oh, hey, hold on a second, you know? They're like, you've been working for that promotion forever, and then they get a promotion, and you're like, oh, I'm so happy for you, (laughs) you know, kind of thing. It's just the way it is. It's our human condition. But uh, the the Christ like attitude is to rejoice and to weep with those who rejoice or weep. And before I move off of that verse, I just want to say I really think that when Jesus, you know, when Jesus saves us, what he's doing is he's beginning a redemption process, he's redeeming us. God made man in his image but we tarnish that image through our sin. So like God's affection, God's care, God's love, God's compassion, God's voice, God's tenderness, God's perfect community that he had within his triune being, all of that, Jesus is redeeming that in us. So it's with, with that theological backdrop that I think we can say, That through the work of Jesus in our lives after coming to him, he can make us more human than we've ever been because he's restoring humanness back to us, the original essence of what it meant to be human. He's bringing it back. And for, for that reason, I believe that Christians, if we live in gospel community with each other, we have an incredible opportunity. Because the world might be just running without those kind of connections and, and, you know, that kind of intimate knowledge of each other's lives. But we have that opportunity. And it gives us a great opportunity to just be more of a whole person uh, than we could have been without the body of Christ and without the redemption uh, of Jesus. I say this with full confidence that if it wasn't for Jesus saving me, and if it wasn't for the community of the body of Christ, I would just be so weird. I just know that. I would be so weird. I'm already weird. I, you know. I know that. But when I think about what I would be without the redemptive work of Jesus making me more human, I'd be so weird. And so, I, can I say that again? I'd be so weird, and so would you. And so we're just thankful for the work of Jesus in, in helping us be more human than we would have been without his work in our lives. Amen? Okay, yes, you're weird, Nate. We say amen to that. Okay, verse 16. Uh, We then move on to a new subject of living humbly with believers. That's another kind of category there of just how to live with others. He says it this way. He says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty or proud, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Some of your Bibles might not say "live in harmony," but they might say "live in one accord." But I really like the way that this translation puts it: "live in harmony" It has kind of like a musical component to it. Some of you are musical people; some of you are not as musical. I I tend to be the non musical person in my family, and uh, you know I have these three little girls who are they they're really. They have great voices. They like to sing. Sometimes we'll be, like, driving along, and we'll start, like, singing a song together. You know, the whole family. We're, like, singing in the car or whatever. And then, like, I want to get in on it. And uh, sometimes I ruin it. You know, I, like, come in there. It's just like, what, what, what song are you singing right now? You know, like, what are you hearing? Like, oh, I thought that's the way it went. Um. So there's like a living in harmony. So that kind of gives you the idea of like just this, like everything's flowing together. This group of believers just flowing together. And there are some things that break that harmony. And it's, he says there in verse 16, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Don't have a proud spirit, but instead be willing to associate with that which is low. Now, Paul doesn't say, you probably noticed it, he doesn't say associate with lowly people. He doesn't say associate with lowly places. He doesn't say associate with lowly tasks or responsibilities. He just says associate with the lowly. It's kind of like he's saying, you fill in the blank on what that is. It might be people, it might be places, it might be tasks, but associate with it. And of course, in that vein, we're very thankful again to Jesus. Because that's exactly what he did for all of us. He came to earth, he associated. Everybody on earth was lowly in comparison to him. There's no room that Jesus ever walked in that he wasn't the greatest figure that was there. The most intelligent, brilliant, powerful, special. He was all of that in every room that he ever walked into. Yet he was willing to associate uh, with us. I'm so thankful that he was willing to associate with me, that he wants to spend time with me. I just imagine what that was like for Jesus. I mean, have you ever thought about how as Jesus sat with his disciples, I mean, for three years, they spent a lot of time together, a lot of trips together, ate a lot of meals together. Do you think there was ever a moment where Jesus was intellectually stimulated in his interactions with the disciples? There there was never anything that like Peter would say where Jesus would say, whoa, that's a fresh take. And I've never thought of that before. No, like he was always the greatest, always giving. Not receiving, but giving. Yet he lowered himself in that kind of way. He saw through people's appearances and he saw worth in their soul. Others would see externally things that repulse them, but Jesus would look into the heart, the soul of that person and see the potential of what they could become. That was Jesus. So we're to do that. Uh, We're not to be haughty, and we're not to be wise in our own sight because a high view of the self or a high view of our perspective, that breaks that harmony. But if we come with humility, uh, then uh, harmony exists uh, between us. All right, so humbly, living humbly with believers. All right, now in verse 17, he goes on, And he tells us to live peaceably with everybody. So that would include believers and non-believers. He says, verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Okay, that word, verse 17, honorable, uh, is a word that uh, could mean good or meaningful or right or praiseworthy, One way that that word is sometimes interpreted or translated into our English language is with the word beautiful. In other words, it's so so kind that it's beautiful. It's like a beautiful action. So instead of when evil comes in your direction of responding, he says, repay no one evil for evil. Instead of that, give something surprisingly beautiful in response. Maybe an example of this from Jesus' life would be in that moment, when he went to the garden of Gethsemane. And after praying for a few hours, Judas came with an army or a band of soldiers to arrest Jesus. And as Judas kissed him to indicate that's Jesus, the one that you're here to arrest. And as they began to put their hands on Jesus and bind him, Peter, who'd brought a sword, he wanted to rush to Jesus's defense. And so he uh, swung his knife or his sword or his dagger at a man who happened to be the servant of the high priest, a man named Malchus. And he actually cut off his ear, the gospels tell us. And Jesus did a couple beautiful things. First, he rebuked Peter, taught Peter, but then he also reached out his hand and he healed Malchus's ear right in that moment. Uh, We don't know how he did it, these are the things that I like to wonder about like how did he do that? We don't know if he picked up the ear that had been cut off and healed it like you know patched it back up miraculously or if he regenerated a new one like the old one's there on the ground and a new one happened like we don't know. These are my questions for heaven, you know that I have. But but how surprisingly beautiful that would have been to respond in that kind of way. I, instead of having an attitude like Hey, you know, you kind of had this coming. And, you know, I didn't do it, but I'm also kind of happy it happened to you kind of thing. Instead of that, Jesus was an instrument of blessing and reconciliation. Uh, We're to respond in beautiful ways when that evil comes against us. So much so that he says the goal in verse 18, if possible, is to live peaceably with everyone. The early church, I think, really grasped this. And I think our brothers and sisters in other countries where they're in such a massive minority probably understand this better than we do in our country. Uh, because the early church understood, I mean, one of the terms that they've used for themselves is they described themselves as aliens. They saw themselves like foreigners in another country as Christians. And if you think about that concept, to be a sojourner or a pilgrim, you think about somebody, it's not hard to imagine somebody coming to a brand new country with a brand new set of people. You work so hard. I've gone to various countries where I stick out like a sore thumb and you're trying so hard not to be offensive not to do things that are unnecessarily you know, awkward and clumsy and things like that. You want to be appealing to the culture that you're in. You're not there with a sense of entitlement. And early believers operated in that kind of way. They had a cautious humility and carefulness about their lives. But notice Paul, Paul does say in verse 18, uh, so far as it depends on you. They were also very conscious of that in the early church. You know, we're not to be persecuted for our mistakes. But, it, but as much as it's possible with us, it's not going to be on us. It's not going to be our fault. But there's a nod there to saying there are times where someone just won't want to have peace with you. And you'll do everything Christ, in a Christ-like kind of way, but they crucified Jesus. And so to have the, the expectation, even when I'm doing everything I can to, to live peaceably here on earth, uh, it, it might not be possible because it's only, I can only control myself. So far as it depends on you, is the way uh, that Paul says it. By the way, uh, this has been, I think, one of the mistakes that some have made in the body of Christ Wanting so badly to live at peace with the world that eventually they'll begin to change their Christian beliefs to maintain the peace. No, the Bible, I don't I know it says that, but I no longer hold to that or I no longer believe that. And it's an attempt so often to continue to live peaceably with the world, but Paul's saying as much as is possible with you. But violating scripture is not possible for us. But many have wanted peace so badly that they'll sacrifice the truth, but we don't want to go into that uh, realm or direction. Okay, let's close this out in verse 19 to 21 to look back again at the subject of living differently with our enemies or responding differently to our enemies. He says it this way in verse 19. He says, Beloved, uh, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Never avenge yourselves, he says, but leave it to God's wrath. It's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's a quote from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 32. And the emphasis here that Paul is making is he's saying, look, God has his job and you have your job. And God's job is the vengeance uh, side of things. And, you know, that's very hard for us to come to terms with in where we're at now because at this point, the ledger is incomplete. At this point, we haven't seen God execute his judgment. But this whole book, the book of Romans, began with the wrath of God against the unrighteousness and sinfulness of mankind. And so we understand that it's there and that vengeance belongs to God. It is his responsibility and job. So we want him to do his job, and we are called uh, to do uh, our job. You know, Jesus obviously talked about this kind of thing when he talked about turning the other cheek, or if someone sues you uh, for your tunic or wants your tunic, give him your, uh, you know, uh, sues you, give him your tunic also. If he forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And again, I don't think he's talking about you know, police or self-defense or an army or something ridiculous like with our families or anything like that. But in our own hearts, how do we feel when someone slaps us, disrespects us? Is there a rage that comes over us because we think so highly of the self? Or are we able to let God take care of those problems? You know, David was a man who I think, at many places he did this beautifully in his life he struggled with it just like we all would but he did beautifully in other places you know he of course in his life he had such an incredible start to his biblical story you know he was just a teenager god spoke to him you're going to be the future king in israel and the spirit came upon him and he was immediately able there were a couple times he killed lions and bears who attacked his father's uh, flock of sheep and And eventually he went out and he went to uh, bring some supplies to his three oldest brothers who were at war with the Philistines. And when he was there, he saw Goliath taunting the people of Israel, this this like professional warrior from the Philistines. And he's like, who's this guy? You know, uh, God's alive. Who's this guy? And eventually he goes out one-on-one into battle against Goliath and slays him. You know He's projected onto the national scene. They're singing songs about him. Like everything's going so beautifully. He gets married to the king. His name is Saul. The king's daughter. And everything just seems to be going great until Saul is overcome with jealousy against David. And he starts trying to kill him a few different times. I think it's like a dozen times that Saul tries to... It's an assassination attempt against David. So David... He flees. He doesn't stay. He doesn't remain inside the abuse, abusive relationship he goes. And one of the places that he went with like 300 guys, it turned into 600 guys, is he went down into the wilderness of En Gedi. It's like this desert area, all these caves, hundreds, maybe thousands of caves down in this area. And a very great place to hide and, you know, nobody would really want to go down there. So he kind of thought, Saul's going to leave me alone. But Saul pursued him into that wilderness. And, you know, the odds of Saul actually just by chance going into David's cave were, you know, not good. But that's exactly what happened. David and his men, they found a cave big enough for all of them to hide in. And they're there hiding in the darkness And Saul stops his army, 3,000 men, stops his army, and he goes into the cave. We don't know whether he was there to take a nap or use the restroom, but he was in the cave for some kind of personal need by himself. And with the light outside and the dark on the inside and the sound of all the horses and chariots on the outside and uh, the silence on the inside, it was a perfect opportunity for David to sneak up on Saul and to take his life. In fact, that's what all of David's commanders and friends told him to do. They said, this is the day that God has spoken of you. I will deliver your enemy into your hand. So they're like quoting God. Remember, God promised that that, he'd do this in your life. But the thing is, God had never actually said that. God had never said, you'll kill Saul. But they, they said, just look at the circumstance. That's what it must mean. And so David crept out. And instead of killing Saul, he cut off the corner of Saul's robe. You know, he didn't even, like, put him in a headlock and, you know, say, like, what are you doing? Like, I'm your son-in-law. We should be having Thanksgiving dinner together. Like, he didn't do any of that. He just cut off the corner of his robe, and Saul, without knowing what had happened, he left. And I want you to think about that because David could have at that moment just let Saul ride off but he followed Saul out of the cave. He gave up all of the military advantage that he had. He and his men were trapped. In other words, he risked everything to try to reconcile with Saul. And he put himself out there and he just says, hey, what are you doing? I'm like a dead dog. I'm like a flea out here in the wilderness. Why are you pursuing me? You're the King of Israel, you're important. Why are, you, why are you pursuing me? I love you. I care about you. And he had that robe in the corner of his hand. And so Saul knew, you could have taken my life. And Saul, you know, he feigned. Uh, you know, oh, I, I'm so sorry. You know, and he left and everything. And then a couple chapters later, he's doing the same thing, trying to kill David. But I say all that just to say, you know, that's a beautiful response. And one of the things that David said in the midst of all that, and he continued to refer to Saul this way in his life, he said, the Lord's anointed. The Lord's anointed. He saw Saul as the king of Israel, as the man that God had chosen there to be the king in Israel. And I guess the question that I have for you is, when there are difficult people in your life, are you able to refer to them as the Lord's anointed? Can you see the way that they are shaping you and molding you. If there had been no Saul, if there had been no Saul, I guarantee you many of the Psalms that you have been comforted by in your life that David wrote, he would have never been able to write. But because Saul had been in his life and that persecution had come, that difficulty had come, God's anointed man was being used in David's life to shape him and to mold him, to develop him in his walk with God. And so we're to give it to the Lord and to let God shape us in the midst of that difficulty. Let's go back to Romans here. I've been telling you about David and 1 Samuel, but let's read our last two verses. Paul says in verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, I, like I said, I know some of you are probably excited about this like the rest of this is hard for me to get down with, but the idea of burning coals on my enemy's head, that sounds good. I can get used to that, you know, kind of concept. What what is this saying? The question here is uh, this is this is what they call by the way, a dead metaphor. And what a dead metaphor means is it was a metaphor that meant something to the people who heard it originally, but it doesn't mean anything to the, to the modern hearer. It's like when my dad, when I was a kid, my dad used to say to me, what's up, alfalfa? And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Apparently, it's from the, this old TV show called The Little Rascals. But like, I had to do a lot of interpretive work to figure out, like, what do you mean? <laughs> what are you talking about? So uh, that's the same thing that we have to do here this is a dead metaphor. They happen in the Bible uh, quite often because it's from a different culture and time. So it's a dead metaphor. So we have to ask ourselves, what is this metaphor? What does it mean? So let's just think about this for a second. Do you think that Paul is building this case like, hey, your enemies, like feed them, love them, care for them, don't curse them, uh, but bless them. Like it's just a counterintuitive response. But then also, Just let me sneak this one in there. Put firebombs on their head. It'll just be great, you know? I don't think that's the way that Paul's logic is working. So there there must be something else that Paul's saying. Maybe he's saying, hey, vengeance belongs to God. He's going to do it. You know, you do your thing, God does his thing. Maybe he's saying uh, that there are... It was like some kind of shame that would come upon them as a result of you operating in that kind of way. And there are some cultural things. There's like an Egyptian custom where when somebody was ashamed sh- uh, of what they'd done, they would put coals of fire on their head, like in a pot or something like that. And it was like a way of saying, like, I'm embarrassed that I treated this person that way. Maybe that's what was happening. Or maybe... It's just, this is a way to bless them. I've heard also that one as a custom that, you know, in that day and age when you wanted to, you needed fire, you might go to your neighbor and say, do you have any fire? Do you have any coals? And they'd say, yeah, I have some coals. You can have some coals. And they'd have a little container. They'd carry containers on their heads quite often in that culture. And you would put the coals in the head or in the uh, container and they'd walk away. So some kind of like blessing maybe or some kind of act of shame that comes upon uh, their hearts. Either way, whatever Paul's saying here, we know that what uh, he's communicating is we are to bless our enemies uh, in our own lives, pray for them, that God's grace would be manifest uh, upon them, and this is the difficult thing for us. And so Paul says in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the cross. That's the cross. Evil came crushing upon Jesus and killed him, but his death overcame all of the evil that killed him. And so for you and for me, uh, we want that attitude to permeate our hearts as well when it comes to the people uh, in our lives. So for some of us, this will be made manifest in real persecution. But probably for a lot of us, this is just going to be made manifest in like our everyday interactions with others. Okay? So if somebody says something you know, kind of rude to you, that doesn't necessarily get the persecution label. You know? You're not like with the Fox's Book of Martyrs, you know, people suffering for their faith. Like, he just turned left and didn't put on his blinker, kind of thing. All right? So we, we understand that. But if this is the attitude in persecution, my goodness, it should easily be. The attitude between friends, co-workers, spouses, this kind of turn the other cheek spirit must permeate uh, our hearts. So Lord, we just pray and ask that you'd help us with this because there's a lot of difficulty that we have with it, God. And so we pray that you'd help us, Lord, in this culture and world where in our natural man we just want to self-defend so badly. We pray, Lord, that you would preserve us, that you'd watch over us, that you'd keep us, Lord, from that kind of response and help us, Lord, to respond as Jesus would have us respond. Just tell the Lord that this morning. Say, God, would you help me? Would you help me? Help me, Lord, to live this kind of way, my body for your glory.